Well, tonight we're going to look again at something of some lessons we can learn from the history of the early church. And uh, we've looked at a couple of aspects of it uh, before now. And just before we do that, though, I want to read uh, some verses from 2 Timothy. Some verses from 2 Timothy. We'll start at verse 10 in chapter 3, and we're going to read through into verse uh, 5 of chapter 4. You, however, have followed my teaching. Paul's writing here to Timothy, encouraging him. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and suffering that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom preach the word Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truths and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober minded, endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. And the words of this come actually very true. We've thought about the, the persecution particularly of the Christian faith and those who had trusted in Christ over the, last, uh, over the first few hundred years. And we saw how, uh, a few weeks ago, we saw how we got to the, the point where Constantine uh, eventually made Christianity legal and persecution by and large ceased. And 50 years after that under Emperor Theodosius, then it also Christianity became the legal or the, the ultimate religion of the Roman Empire. But during that time there was a lot of persecution and we looked at some of those examples. Um, if you remember we, we saw that, but why, how on earth was the church not wiped out? I mean here's the whole might of the Roman Empire and all over the place uh, there was anti-Christian sentiment. And of course the answer is it's because of the message that we still proclaim today. It's because of that wonderful good news that the early apostles and the early Christians, they were sharing with their friends, their family, their neighbours, the wonderful good news that we still share with you today. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. God so loved you that he sent his son to come to this earth and to die for your sins and for my sins. And that still is that wonderful message that 2,000 years we're still able to proclaim. And so the church grew in number. And by the time of Constantine, it's estimated that between 7 and 12% 
of the population in the Roman Empire, that's about a million people, were Christians. And that's just amazing. Think about it. Here's a few men. And they start preaching at Pentecost. And a few thousand are saved. And a couple of hundred years later, there's over a million Christians. And we still have that opportunity to reach men and women today with a wonderful message. The gospel, we read last week from Romans 1, and, and you know, Paul wrote, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And that's exactly the message that we have today. And we'll be looking at the different aspects of the spread of the, uh, the, the, the Christianity. And we've been also been looking a little bit about uh, what happened to internally in the church. And tonight I want to continue on a little bit of that. And a thought of interest for yourselves. We might think a little bit about the spread of the gospel to the, to the British Isles. And uh, this is a sort of a little bit of a timeline up until the Romans leave Britain. So we see quite quickly that we, we learned that the, the gospel message got to the British Isles relatively early on. The Eastern churches, and most of the churches, don't forget, were in the East. They came from Turkey. The Eastern churches were very keen at getting out and spreading the gospel. They spread it through France and through France up into uh, the British Isles. And in fact, we know that by the time it reaches 100, around about 175, that some of the early church fathers are writing and saying, look, the Christians exist in every country of the empire. We even hear of the, the persecutions that uh, happened in other parts of the empire were the same. We, we know of Alban who was beheaded uh, under the Diocletian persecution around about 200, around about uh, uh, 300. And uh, we also know that shortly after that, when Christianity became legal, that there were representatives from the church in Britain at the Council of Arles, which was the first council called by Constantine. Uh, then things go a little bit pear-shaped, a little bit downhill. The Romans are under attack, Rome is under attack, and the Roman legions leave Britain around about AD 400. And you would think, well, what's going to happen to the church then? Well, of course, it's in that background that we're, we, we begin to see something wonderful happen and something different. And of course, it's, it's a history that we're very familiar with. Uh, so it is, as we see how the gospel then gets spread into different parts of the, the British Isles. And um, the next slide I'll show is a little bit of that. It's, it's a bit of an accumulation slide, so I'll, I'll work my way through it quickly. But you'll see that, first of all, around about AD 400, Ninian went up into South Scotland. And then we have our own famous Patrick, who had been in Ireland and left and possibly went back to France. Well, he takes the gospel to Ireland about 425. And then about uh, 60, 70 years later, David spreads the gospel in Wales. And it's, the gospel message is still being reached into the British Isles. And after that then, so much so that the Patrick's efforts in Ireland, there are many, many, many converts in Ireland. And Columba takes a band of monks and he goes to Iona. Sort of you remember, all these are famous, we've heard about them. And uh, he then starts to spread the gospel in, into Scotland. Now that's all been happening in the background. At the same time, the uh, Bishop of Rome, who at this, by this stage is a man called Gregory, who's a monk, and he's very faithful each day at, at 
getting a message out in a practical Christian way to those living in Rome, to poor people, uh, because the Roman Empire basically had collapsed at this stage. And so Gregory got food left out every day for him. But, but he also had a passion to reach people with the gospel. And Gregory got a, a man called Augustine and 12 monks. And he sent them to southern Britain. And you know, they did a bit of a Jonah. We were thinking about Jonah last week. They did a bit of a Jonah. They got to North France and they said, uh, 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 These are savages we are going to. These are barbarians. Uh, well, their, their aspect was they were more frightened that when they got across the English Channel that they would never come back again. So they chickened out and they turned around and Gregory had to persuade them, no, I, the gospel has got to go to the British Isles. They didn't know in Rome really anything about the Celtic church that we were, we were talking about a, a moment ago with, with what was happening with Columba and what had happened under Patrick. So Augustine gets the monks and they do land in South England and they go to Canterbury and they actually get a good reception from the Saxon king there whose wife happens to be a Christian. And so Augustine and the monks arrive by 595. At the same time, uh, Columbus monks from Iona go to Northumbria to Lindisfarne and they set up another monastery there. By the way, it's an interesting little thing that they tended to go out with one leader and 12 monks representing Jesus and the twelve apostles and that's the same with Augustine as well so here we have the British Isles and it's being reached in two directions it's been reached around the Celtic regions in the north the tribes are being the Picts, the Scots uh, all those tribes that we read about the Angles and the Saxons they're being reached from the south and it's different, it's diverse so what happens next? well what happens next is that um, the gospel is spread south and westwards and in, or eastwards and into Ireland from the Celtic Church. So it reaches down into northern Britain. At the same time, Augustine, who has by now become the first Archbishop of Canterbury, the new church in Canterbury, there, the, under the influence of the ones sent from Rome, they're reaching into southern Britain. And all of a sudden, the British Isles, instead of being a dark place full of savages, is a wonderful place. Ireland, of course, by this time has a reputation being, as we look back, of being full of saints and scholars. So much so that the British Isles become the senders of missionaries to places like Germany, to over the Rhine, to where the Roman soldiers have been murdered in their thousands, and where the gospel now needed to reach to the German tribes and to other places in Holland and uh, the northern parts of Europe that were unreached. So it was interesting to see just how that developed. By the way, there was a slight subtle change too, because as the missionaries were going out, there was a subtle change in their message. The early church, the big message was Jesus is the Messiah. Paul was preaching that to basically Jewish communities. But now in the West, where the, the Messiah, well, who was the Messiah? They didn't understand, they had no Jewish background. And the big message was Jesus is Lord. And Jesus was the God who had come and died for their sins. A wonderful message. And the message was spread and it bore fruit. So that's what was happening anyway. I thought it would be of interest as we think of the spread of the gospel. The British Isles became somewhere that was the spreading out the gospel. And there's still... Uh, 
We still love to see those leaving these shores and going to tell others about the Lord Jesus Christ today. Well, I said earlier that in 315, or 313, uh, Edict of Milan, Constantine had made the uh, Christianity legal. And what was happening then was that he then decided he wanted to get churches together and he called that first council in Arles that I mentioned uh, that some of the British uh, bishops went to. But that was the start of what was to become a period when there were a number of councils and there were seven major ones, seven what we call ecumenical councils because they, were, they included all the churches. So the aim was to include all the churches and leaders and representatives from all the churches uh, throughout the Roman Empire and beyond. Now, by the time some of these were taking place, the Western Roman Empire had basically collapsed. But that didn't mean the Christian church had collapsed in those areas. Far from it. And maybe the next time we come back to that, we'll look at this. But it was interesting. These councils met. They had a number of representatives. Some were short councils. Some were long and uh, they, they met together to decide and debate and discuss a number of important issues that were prevalent in the church, particularly to work through some of the difficulties that people were experiencing with teaching that wasn't sound or wasn't orthodox. They wanted to get the grip of the scriptures right. They wanted to make sure that what people were taught was what the Bible was teaching and what Christ had taught and what the apostles had taught and they wanted people to get it right and there were by this stage there were um, five big churches in uh, that were sort of had come to prominence they become the, the major uh, powers as it were there was the the church in Constantinople which was the the Eastern Empire's capital so where the Eastern Emperor was so the, there was a big church there. There was a church in Antioch and Alexandria, in Carthage and Rome. So with North Africa represented by two, with Eastern Europe, uh, the Middle East represented by two, and one Western one in Rome. The church in Carthage, it, over the next few centuries, its uh, leadership goes a slightly different route and they fall away in, in importance as well. But what happened is that at that time there was a lot of people who were had gone into heresy. The next slide will show. I don't think the slide will come up very well for you. Probably won't see it very well. But if you can see, there's a whole lot of wee waves of things like that there, and these were centres where heresies were were happening. And some of these heresies, well, they the people were called heretics, but they were theological and differences that people were trying to reason out sometimes and some held one viewpoint and some held another. In the East the churches particularly were um, there was a lot of philosophical spiritual sort of enlightened type discussion in the West there was more of a practical let's work this out and get something sorted out and so there were a few and I, I, there, there are a lot more than the ones that are shown there and I'm not even going to go through many of them tonight and time would uh, forbid us to try and do that but I want to just mention a couple of them there's one called Gnosticism which was and I, briefly it means that the people there were teaching that you could get saved that your salvation really came through a special knowledge and that you could gain higher spiritual plane you could go up to as well and um, it included human rationality and thought so it was all worked out 
And then there was one called uh, Manichism, who was a, a man called Mani who developed this one. And it, it was a bit like a mixture of Buddhism and Zoroasterism from the Middle East and Christianity put together. It was a new age type of Christianity that we've seen so abundant even today. And as, and as we talk about these things, these are still in people's minds today. Gnosticism, the idea that we man can elevate his mind to greater things. The idea that there's some mystic involved in, in this manichism that it was there. And then there was another one called Montanism, who was another self-declared prophet. They held, well, there's no clergy, there's no... As men and women are all equal, all equal and... Uh, the Holy Spirit would give you prophecy and you would come and you would be overtaken by the Holy Spirit in your meeting and you would prophesy men or women and sometimes they would lose control of themselves and it sounds a bit familiar if you're you know, Toronto blessing over the last number of years well, I thought this was 2000 years ago well then there's another one and that's a, a difficult one to get our head around but this is Sabbatism and there they held that God was one God but he could appear in three different ways. So he could appear as a spirit or he could appear as human or he could appear as, as God. So, the, so that was a real one that was a way out there as well. Because it really was denying the trinity that we understand today. But there was also one, one or two biggies and one other, one real biggie was Arianism. Arianism effectively states as its main uh, article of faith that, that God is one. So it's a Unitarian position. God is one. But it also then goes on to say that Jesus is divine but was created by God. And you can see there immediately that 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 is a disastrous line to approach. Because if Jesus was not God then he could not die for our sins. If Jesus, the Bible teaches quite clearly that Jesus was God, was pre-existent with God, was co-involved in the creation of the world with God was not a created being at all. Arianism is still rife today. Think about it. Think where the JWs are at. Even Mormonism in a sense, although there's other aspects in there, they still hold that type of viewpoints. There's also Utilitarian preaching today. And Arianism had a big hold. And that's why the Council of Nicaea that Athanasius, the pastor, talked about uh, that's why that took place there to try and refute that and of course they were successful but they didn't wipe it out completely because there were new problems and uh, so these councils they were aimed at really refuting all these different heresies and what they tried to do the councils then began to put creeds together that would um, basically hammer out what we believe what we believe and so we have the councils met again as I said there were seven of them and I'm not, I'll not take time tonight to run through all that they did but mention the first, a couple of the first ones I've already mentioned the Council, Nicaea, the Council of Nicaea the other one the Council of Ephesus was an interesting one and it linked in with the, the Council of Chalcedon the two of them basically were looking at the same problem and uh, there was a a young man who was a disciple of the Bishop of Constantinople and he basically put it out that Mary should not be called the mother of God but rather should be the mother of Jesus 
And that became a major, major conflict, or area of conflict, between a couple of the bishops. They wrote letters to each other and spread around the church. And so this idea that, you know, one was trying to say, well, Mary is just the mother of Jesus. We can't make her the mother of God. But, the, but one was saying, but if you make her the mother of just Jesus, you're de- denying the deity of Jesus. You're denying his divinity. And the other saying, but if you make her the mother of God, you're actually implying that, you know, she was the mother of God, which isn't true. So the emphasis was, is it about man? Is it about flesh? Is it about the divinity of Christ? Or is it about the man, Christ the man, Christ the human? And so these were the type of arguments that had to be rationalised out. And the, uh, at the Council of Chalcedon in 451, it really finally, they hammered this out very well. And they got a, a words put together that had been attended by a lot of bishops, nearly all from the Middle East, from the Eastern churches. But the biggest influence came from Leo in Rome. Leo was a bishop in Rome and he had written a letter and he put it down and uh, he really he, he, he expressed it really, really well. And I'm going to take time just to, to read uh, what he says. Think about it. Accordingly, while the distinctiveness of both natures and substances was preserved, are both met in one person. Lowliness was assumed by majesty. Weakness by power. Mortality by eternity. And in order to pay the debt of our condition, that which cannot be harmed That nature was united to that which suffers. And God then, and so that the appropriate remedy for our life, one and the same mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, might from one element be capable of dying and also from the other be incapable. Therefore in the entire and perfect nature of very man was born very God. Hard to get our head around, isn't it? But what he's basically saying is, look, Jesus is fully God, but was also fully man. And that's the position that we hold to today. Jesus, two persons, two natures in one person, fully God and fully man. And out of that came a number of creeds. There are four main ones that came from them. The Nicene and the Chalcedon Creed came directly from these. The Athanasian and the Apostolic Creeds are sort of build-ups around about it. And by and large, they form the basis of our doctrinal position that we hold to today, for example. And you can see the tree there that works out. The Eastern Orthodox churches, by and large, hold to those creeds and don't add to them, by and large. The Roman Church did add to them the Council of Trent and Vatican Councils. The Evangelical churches have produced their own creeds, of which we're familiar with many of them. And they form them. But basically, these creeds were hammered out at these first councils. And it was really important that they got it right. So, with the collapse of Rome, it was difficult. The empire was falling apart. So as well as the councils, there was one other important thing that was happening in Christendom. And that was the rise of monasteries. And the rise of monasteries... And it seems odd, you know, we get this picture, we think of a, you know, a fat monk and the habit running around with a head shaved and all the rest of it. And there was a reason for why they had different haircuts, by the way, but we'll not go into that tonight. But um, they did, they had different ones. However, where did, it, where did it all come from? Well, 
it sort of goes back, by and large, a lot of people think it goes back to this man Anthony in Egypt. But really, the thing is, it, the, the monasteries came out of some Christians having the desire to be faithful to God's word and to get closer to God in a real meaningful spiritual way. Anthony, he was 19, his parents died. He heard a lot of land, a fair bit of money. And he, he then went and heard a sermon preached on Matthew 19 and 21. Sell all you have, the rich wrong rulers told, sell all you have, give it away to the poor, come and follow me. And Anthony, that's exactly what he did. Sold his property, gave it to the village, gave his fields to the village, gave the money to the poor and went and lived so that he could get close to Christ. And then a hundred or so followed him and emulated him. But even beyond that, what then happened was that there, other people began to see that there would be a value in how, how do I get closer to God? And so there's a lot of verses that they, they then began to look at and took them a wee bit in isolation perhaps. But as well as that one, we have verses like First Thessalonians 5 and 17, pray without ceasing. Oh, let's go and pray to God and we'll get closer. Set your minds on things that are above. Well, of course, if we go and we go away, we can do that. It is good for them to remain single as I am. This celibacy was was in an an aspect of it. And of course, all about forgetting about yourself. Don't worry about yourself. God will provide for you. Don't worry. And then do good. And the monks and the, 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 the nuns then that. You know, so popular was this way of life that from Anthony in about 250 AD, by the time Constantine came around 325, about 350, it's estimated, now wait to hear this one, 27,000 women in Egypt alone were in communities, monastic communities. 27,000 women, I'm not talking about men, women in Egypt alone were there. And you know, we owe a lot to the monks and monasteries particularly this early group and I don't think we really understand it fully how much of a debt we owe to them particularly in preserving and copying scripture it's because of their faithfulness and their work that we have our scripture today handed down Jerome for example in a monastery he spent a lifetime in a monastery in Bethlehem translating the scripture into the language the Latin language so that Latin speaking people could understand the scriptures in their own language. Another man called Ulfilas translated the gospel into Gothic so they could take it into the, into the German tribes. And as well as that, they studied scripture and they learned from it. And they maintained orthodoxy. And they, that helped preserve against the attacks of their different heresies. And they also maintained faithful Christian witness in a time of real upheaval, especially in the Western Roman world. It was the monasteries in Ireland. It was the monasteries in Scotland and north of England that, that brought the gospel message to Britain. It was, um, it was the like of a monk like Gregory who became the Bishop of Rome who sent Augustine to, bring, to Britain because they had a, a missionary heart. They wanted to spread the gospel and they cared for other people particularly those who had been adversely affected. So monasteries were important 
about the whole focus tonight we've been, we've been reading from Timothy about the importance of God's word and, and this was something that we see time and time again preserved in such a way for us today by faithful men as they did and they took time to, to spend it aside. I'm going to come back to monasteries in, um, in the future, God willing. I want to move on then just as we come near the end and, uh, and finish it off tonight. And we've, we've also thought about what's been happening internally in the church. And one of the things that we've been looking at is the development of the canon of scripture. And we saw that early on that in AD 100 the four gospels and the number of the letters of Paul's were in general circulation. And then uh, we know that the early gospel writers, or the early uh, Christian uh, post-apostolic writers, um, they defended the gospels, they defended scriptures. And by the year 2000, there are 200, we find the first real canon of scripture called the Muratorium Canon. The next slide will show you the book's of the New Testament that were then involved as being accepted scriptures for us to really take on board, for the churches to take on board and to learn from and to read. You'll notice that some of them, First and Second Peter, Hebrews and James are not included. And you notice that there's some there, uh, Wisdom of Solomon, the Apocalypse of Peter and a couple of other forgeries in Paul's name who were also included that aren't in our New Testament today. And then there was also one for, you know, we, we, we share now, here's a book we recommend you to read. Well, The Shepherd of Hermas was one that's a bit like uh, The Pilgrim's Progress. It's that type of allegory. It was an encouraging book for, for people to read. And so uh, this then begins to show that by the year 200, that we're beginning to feel what we've actually got as our New Testament it's, it's almost there. It's almost there. About 40 years later, Origen then, he quotes all the 27 books of the New Testament that we now have. But he also noted, yes, well, there's still some difficulty and there's disputes over Hebrews and over Second Peter and Second and Third John and, and Revelation. Particularly Hebrews because Hebrews had no author to it. But things moved on and in the next 130 years or so, 150 years, Athanasius and that then supported by the Synod of Carthage, they hammer out our New Testament. And it is as it is today. The books are included. The bottom line is, where our writing came from the, a, a disciple of Christ, or do, someone directly connected with such a person, chosen by Christ as an apostle, and where the pure message was one of personal testimony about Christ and tied in and dovetailed with the apostle message, then it was accepted into the canon. But note, it took nearly 400 years for that to happen. What was important was the word was being taught and spoken and people's lives were being changed as the gospel message was shared. And we focus so much on God's word today and it's wonderful that we have it in the way we have it. And we need to give thanks for those who were prepared to debate, discuss and work it through until we receive the canon of scripture that we have today. But it wasn't always true and not all the churches had all those things. 
and sometimes it was difficult for them. For example, there was a, a Tatian uh, wrote a, a, a harmony of the Gospels. So he took the, the, the narrative out of the Gospels basically and put out the four of them together in, in a, a, a piece of work called the Diatessaron. Diatessaron means from four bits or the joining together of four bits or digging with four bits. And it really took the Gospels and for some churches that's what they had to use. That was their Gospel the harmony of the four of them put together for about 200 years and then gradually as the, 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 the New Testament solidified and the gospel got out into all the churches and the best of the New Testament too then the need for that went away but it, it was a, an amazing time I, I've flown through rapidly a lot of the things that happened in the early church uh, to give you a feel for a time of great upheaval in the West, and we're going to see that more on another occasion, as, as Rome collapsed, in the East, the Empire, because the Christianity became a state religion, the Empire had a big say, and the Emperor had a say sometimes in the affairs of the Church. And gradually things were creeping into the Church which weren't good and which were wrong. And we'll see that again in another occasion. But I want to finish with an extract of a letter from Origen to Gregory. Gregory became, Origen was one of the big church post-apostolic fathers. And Gregory became a, a bishop of Caesarea. And I know it's very wordy on there, but I think it's important because this is the message to all of us. This is still the message that we need to think about today for ourselves as Christians. Just as we thought at the start there of the importance of spreading the gospel message and the wonderful news that we still have to tell people that Jesus Christ loves you and died for you and wants you to be, wants to be your saviour. What did Oregon write then to Gregory? Do you then, sir, my son, study first all of the design scriptures? Study them, I say, for we require to study the divine writings deeply. Lest we should speak of them faster than we think. And while you study these divine works with a believing and, uh, and God-pleasing intention, knock at that which is closed of them, and it shall be opened to you by the doorkeeper of whom Jesus says, To him the doorkeeper opens. While you attend to this divine reading, seek aright and with unwavering faith in God, the hidden sense which is present in most passages of the divine scriptures and do not be content with knocking and seeking for what is most necessary for understanding divine things is prayer and in urging us to this the saviour says not only knock and it shall be opened to you and seek and you shall find but also ask and it shall be given to you isn't that a wonderful encouraging message isn't that what Paul was like when he wrote to Timothy when, when we read earlier about, you know, you followed my example and I want you to now to remember the scriptures. And here's Orion saying, look, study the scriptures. Not just read them, study them, pray about them, learn from them, dig deep into them. There's wonderful messages there. That's what we need to do. That's the message from this era the monks did it faithfully for us. So did the leaders of many churches. They argued over the fine points. Yes, they fell out. Yes, there were difficulties. But God's word 
was still proclaimed faithfully and many, many millions of people came to the Lord Jesus Christ. And people still need today to continue to study God's word, to knock, find it to be open, to seek and will find, and to ask God for illumination of it. Amen. We're going to uh, move to the table. We'll move to the table and as we're moving to that we'll sing uh, Father of Mercies in your word. <laughs>